You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, everybody. So I get to start this week. So Yay! exciting. Hey, Rachel. Yay! Hey. So I have... I have a question for you. What defines a plant? What do you, what makes you think, yes, that is a plant? I feel like this is a trick question. Probably. I mean, most of them have chlorophyll and can make their own food from sunlight, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. They have a cell wall. I mean, we're going to go leaves. The big thing you think about, um, so much variation if you're talking about like woody stemmed species versus you know herbaceous species things like that um they need water something that, and air yeah, something that grows up toward the uh, toward the sun usually you know mm-hmm. requires sunlight but of course not all of them and i'm glad you both said not all plants because yeah. i'm going to be talking about a plant that doesn't have chlorophyll Yes. Mm. I have a guess what your plant might be. You probably both have seen this. (laughs) Um, I'm doing, my topic this week is Monotropa uniflora. Yes. I practice One of my favorites. It's so fun. I love finding this out and about. So it's also known as the ghost plant or Indian pipe or ghost pipe. It has a variety of names. And this plant looks, it comes out of the ground and it looks like a waxy, flaky candy cane that is just white. It doesn't have any red stripes. <laughs> it is a pretty good subscription. Yeah, Thank very you. waxy looking. I think that's a good description. Waxy, <laughs> and you said flaky. That's flaky. The key, like a, a flaky, that's not appealing, no. No, but no, it's, it's not. It actually looks nicer than that description. It yeah, does, it yeah. Really I, cool. But still... I would not want to, like, you know, pop one in my mouth. We'll get into that. Oh, um, boy. Oh, dear. I'm <laughs> so, going to learn something. It'll be fun. Uh, so the stem itself and the plant itself gets to any be anywhere from 5 to 30 centimeters tall, also like known as, like, 2 to 11.8 inches tall, with small Ooh, leaves boy, that, that look 11 like, would be big. Right? I've never seen one yeah, that big. I've usually found really small ones. Um, Six or seven inches, yeah. Right. Uh, they're really small, and they have really thin, translucent leaves. Leaves, I say with quotations, that extend out kind of like a sheath. Uh, uh-huh. So they look very scale-like, just flaking off of the plant itself. Uh, yep. And then they hold a single flower um, that's very, very small. So that hook at the very end, that little bulb, is the flower with some very small petals and like 10 to 12 stamens with a single pistil. And this comes out from early summer through early autumn. It is an ephemeral plant, okay? They do get pollinated 
by little baby bumblebees. Well, not baby bumblebees, but just little <laughs> bumblebees. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, they also are. Um, they also get pollinated by some flies, so they're a pretty important pollinated source for those species. Fun fact: this perennial plant is technically in the heather family, which includes cranberry, ericaceae, which includes cranberry, blueberry, huckleberry, and rhododendrons. So that's quite a family. Yeah. So it's in a subfamily. There's some debate on whether or not it's its own family or if it's a subfamily in ericaceae um, called monotropaceae. Sure. Um, so what really gives it that uh, general look is that white waxy look that it has on the outside. It doesn't have any chlorophyll, which is why I'm covering it today, because this ephemeral only comes up during certain conditions and it only happens after it's been really dry for a while and then it rains. And then because this one doesn't have any chlorophyll, it is white. So to generate energy, because they don't photosynthesize, because they don't have chlorophyll, so they don't need energy from the sun. They don't need energy from the light, rather. Um, They're kind of parasitic. (laughs) So they feed on um, fungi that have a symbiotic relationship with trees' root systems. So they feed on that fungi that is getting their nutrients from the root systems of certain trees. And that's how they grow to have their um, seeds and just be a plant above the earth. So Rachel, correct me if I'm wrong here. I feel like the scientists only kind of figured out this relationship pretty recently because I thought that we used to think that it was just straight up a decomposing plant that it would feed on like decaying wood or Right, something right. like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people think it's actually a fungus, uh, and it's not. It's a plant. Um, yeah, it is a a mycoheterotroph. Thank yes, you for that, is. Kirk. <laughs> Thank you. That was my next line. Was it is oh, a mycoheterotroph? <laughs> so yeah, so it eats the uh, fungus off of the roots. Uh, it has like parasitic relationship that fungus on the tree's roots it does have some uh preferences it really apparently they really enjoy beech trees like they're found more often around the root systems of beech trees so around here that'd probably be like ironwood yeah Mm -hmm. uh i believe makes sense um but because of all of that it doesn't require sunlight at all so it can be found in really dark places with really heavy um upper story cover so it doesn't the trees can cover and block out the sun they can still grow i have Uh, a question for you oh sorry i've sometimes seen some indian pipe that has a a, like a pink blush on it do you have any Mm -hmm. information about that uh, that's just some color variation. Um, they're often found with some pink blush as well as maybe some black flecks. In certain areas, they can actually be like a really deep red as well. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, uh, 
this plant is one of about 3,000 non-photosynthetic plants that are in the world. Um, oh, wow. That's more than, that's more than I would have thought. Yeah, there's yeah. about 3,000, which blows, our, blows my mind, at least, because I would always think, well, it's a plant, so it has to photosynthesize. That's what you're taught, right? Nature yeah. laughs at your categories. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a reoccurring theme for this show, yeah. Yeah, and then to go back to your point earlier, Kirk, how you didn't want to pop one in your mouth and, like, eat yeah. it. Well, this plant has been used as a medicine, in herbal medicine, uh, for nervousness slash anxiety, it's uh, nervosa, uh, since the late 19th century. Now, there's been some Don't try debate. this at home. Please don't try this at home. Please, please do not eat this plant. Uh, just enjoy it. There's not much uh, science behind whether or not it actually helps uh, very much. And there's some debate, actually, if it has it is mildly toxic or not. So please don't yeah, eat you it. Know, <laughs> I, I always take all that stuff with a grain of salt. People mm -hmm. used to, like, drink mercury as a cure-all. Right. So I mean, just because someone did something in the past doesn't mean you should keep doing it now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mercury did, it was a cure-all. You did get cured of everything by well, dying. It was the ultimate cure, yeah. Yeah, I when guess. you're dead, you don't have a disease anymore. Right, Exactly. True. But that's what I have for all of you. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back from our break, and I am excited to talk about my topic today. In my years as a professional naturalist, I have taught many, many classes about insects to children, as I'm sure both of you have also. Many. Truly one of my favorites, yeah. And among other things, we teach the kids that the things that make insects unique among other invertebrates are they have three pairs of legs, three body yep. parts, compound one pair eyes. of antennae. Yeah, compound mm -hmm. eyes. Although there are other invertebrates that have compound eyes. And they have up to two pairs of wings. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's zero, two, or four. Yeah. And in fact, they're the only invertebrates with wings. But I am not here today to talk about insects. Well, you're sure talking about them a whole lot for not yeah. talking about them. But <laughs> I was fully moving prepared on. for an insect. <laughs> All right. Today, Victoria is talking about fish. In the <laughs> 1920s and 30s, the U.S. Department of Agriculture funded an extensive study of insect migration, and they used an insect trap that was mounted on an airplane, which, given oh. the time period, I'm guessing was probably a biplane. I'm just sort of picturing it in my head, you know? But okay. I don't know for sure. 1920s, you said? 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. yeah, that's absolutely a biplane. Yeah. So they did 1,358 flights with a total of 1,538 hours of flying time in Louisiana and Mexico. And they caught, oh, wow. they caught 28,739 specimens. Nice. Most specimens of these. Of what? what? Sorry? Specimens of what? Well, we're getting there. <laughs> Most of these were obviously winged insects, but sure. 1,401 
that's one in 17 for you keeping okay. track at home, were spiders. Yeah. What? Oh. Spiders. Wait, 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 wait. Spiders. I'm going to go ahead wings. and just give me a moment to scratch this topic off my list. Okay, <laughs> keep going. Okay. So you might oh, be I have wondering. who are going to hate this. What's going on here? If, like many American children, you grew up reading the classic story Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, you might already have a guess as to how so many wingless spiders wound up at that altitude. You, you catching up with me now, okay. Rachel? I'm catching up. I'm, I'm there, yes. Okay. It is I'm something pic- I called... I was picturing spiders with wings. Yeah, no, there terrifying. are no spiders oh, with wings. I can see why you're saying people wouldn't like that, yeah. As the French exactly. say, sin n'existe pas. Okay, continue. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> spiders, uh, some spiders can do this behavior called ballooning. They, yes. they climb to a Yay. high point. They point their abdomens like up in the air. Yeah. And they release a bunch of very fine, lightweight silk, which then carries them aloft. Okay. So it's been known for centuries that many species of spiders have this behavior. And it's mostly seen in spiderlings, which is a word that I love. Um, And when they disperse from their birthplace, that's what happens in Charlotte's Web. Uh, Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. There's bigger bigger spoilers in that story. I think we're okay. (laughs) Just don't talk about it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes adult spiders also do this, however. Spiders have been found as high as almost five kilometers. That's 16,000 feet above sea level. And they've been found at least 1,600 kilometers from land. So they get around. This is a high mortality behavior. So, uh, you know, a lot of spiders don't survive. It's, it's pretty high risk, but the, I guess the rewards of dispersing and, and finding um, less crowded ground for their hunting uh, outweigh the, the um, downside. So for a long t- yeah, being eaten. For a long time, it was thought that the silk simply catches the wind in order to lift the spider up. Uh, and... That turns out not to be exactly the case. Oh, it's so it's it's so much cooler. Yeah, so, models of aerodynamics. Oh, it's cooler than that. It's cooler than that. So they, you know, scientists have been doing aerodynamic models to figure out spider ballooning, and they were not the models were not able to explain everything that was observed in spider flight. In particular, um, how rapidly the silk seems to come out of the spinnerets, because spider, spiders do not shoot out the silk something is needed to pull the silk out. Um, right. And they also lift off more quickly than the models would, would have showed. So a recent study in 2018 came out. Um, this is by Erica Morley and Daniel Robert. And they showed that spiders can, in fact, lift off in an enclosed box indoors in the absence of any air movement. What? Yes. So cool. They do oh. it. They do it with electric fields. What? Yeah. Yes. Electrostatic. Awesome. That's crazy. The power of static electricity. So basically, this is like a gross simplification, I'm sure, but the Earth's atmosphere is generally positively charged, and the Earth's surface is generally negatively charged, as is anything that's connected to it, for example, plants. Right. So 
when the spider, um, when the silk leaves the spider's abdomen, it gets a negative charge. And then the negatively charged threads are attracted to the positively charged air and repelled from each other. So they kind of fan out to make this big surface area. And mm -hmm. that attractive force um, of the negatively charged silk to the positively charged air requires, uh, that provides enough force for liftoff, which is pretty amazing. That's insane. I, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not what we expected. <laughs> so this idea had actually been floated before. Ah, I see what you did there. Uh, as early as Darwin's time, but it was unproven right. until these experiments in 2018. They're pretty amazing. They were able to show, first of all, that spiders could detect electric fields. They put them in these enclosed plastic boxes and they gave them a little strip of cardboard to climb on top. And then they applied an electric field of a kind of similar strength to what they would find outside. And spiders actually have these tiny little sensory hairs on their legs and they were able to observe the movement of the little hairs in response to the electric field. Cool. And then okay. the, the spiders then showed the behavior of starting to balloon and some of them actually were able to take off inside this enclosed box and then they drop to the ground when they turn the electric field off, which just must have been pretty comical. <laughs> wow. Wee! Down I went. <laughs> it's it's cool that you mentioned uh, Darwin, because I know that he he actually observed ballooning when he was on the, the Beagle. Yes, he did. So, I mean, this has been known for quite a while. Yeah, and it's it was actually observed back in the time of, like, Aristotle and the Greeks. Oh, sure. There's um, enough time outside to see this stuff. Yeah. Um, so super cool recent discovery about, uh, something that has been known to people for a really long time, but wasn't totally understood. That's what I got Absolutely on that today. Amazing. Awesome. Love it. So well, good. when we get back from the bake, it will be time for Kirk. So, you know, we live on earth. I think you're familiar with that fact hmm. and it's a pretty pretty amazing so. yeah pretty amazing place we often you know we talk about it a lot here on the show uh i want to see kind of i guess i wanted this as a little bit of a quiz for the two of you to see how much you know about this little planet we live on and today we're talking about extremes oh on the planet earth all I'm, right we're I'm gonna ready. get extreme I'm all right naturalist so, quiz i'm in i thought it'd be fun I'm to so think about down. Extremes are always really cool. So I want to go through these. Uh, they're all having have to do with weather. So okay. what, do you, what do you think the hottest temperature, the hottest air temperature ever recorded on Earth is? Now, th this is not over a volcano. This is like naturally occurring uh, weather it's like temperature. It's like around 140 or 150 degrees Fahrenheit, I think. Okay. Rachel? I was going to go about 139 Ooh, well, it turns out when it comes to rec records, it's kind of hard to say uh, because we all have to agree on a standard. Uh, certainly, I think about like the surface temperature of a blacktop is going to be way hotter than grass just a few feet away. Yeah. Uh, so like when you talk about surface temperatures, that those numbers can get, you know, just really, really high. But we want to talk about air temperature. So then mm -hmm. it's like, well, are we going to measure the air temperature a centimeter above the ground? a foot above the ground, 10 feet above the ground. If everybody's not measuring the same or even using the same like type of thermometer and stuff, it's pretty hard to 
come up with records for like where's the hottest record ever. Um, Metric there versus are... imperial system. Uh, well, yeah, you can but, convert, just, but you can convert. I'm thinking more about the actual like materials that are used. Um, you know, some of these records go back quite far. One of the what's considered to be the record of the hottest ever was uh, from back in 1913. And, you know, they weren't necessarily using the same standards. So they try to like correct for, oh, we think they're using this kind of thermometer and this kind of, you know, and so it, it becomes sort of like, eh. and I don't want to go into the whole morass of like, you know, which record is right and whatnot, uh, but kind of focus on the general number, which is about 130 degrees Fahrenheit. <clears throat> so around uh, 55 degrees centigrade. That yes. temperature has been recorded in multiple places in Israel, Tunisia, Kuwait, Iran, Death Valley in California, probably some other locations around the world as well. Uh, so there have been claims of it getting a little bit higher, you know, maybe 134, 135, something like that. But a lot of those are disputed. Um, but we can all kind of agree that the hottest it generally gets is right around 130 degrees. And it happens on multiple spots on the earth. So as a fun aside, you know, we are here recording in Minnesota. And I think people listening, if you're not from here, might think, oh, that's a really cold, chilly place. Uh, Andy. Do you want to guess what the record is for high temperature in Minnesota? 118. Ooh, it's yeah, 115. 115. So yeah. only 15 degrees away from the record, essentially. That was back in 1917. Uh, hottest I've personally seen it, I think, was I remember one summer I was teaching and our, our thermometer at the Nature Center hit 112 mm. on our weather station. And, uh, you know, no. it was it was kind of fun, you know, like we we're used to it because they've been getting hotter all week. And it was kind of cool to be like, you know, we're we're doing water games and stuff. And it was like we stayed cool. So it was all right. So let's go the opposite direction. Let's talk about cold. How cold right. do you think so, it gets so on far it? on this quiz? So far on this quiz, I'm winning, right? Yeah, you are. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you have One to go data first, point, then. Rachel, but yes. Yes. Okay. So the coldest yeah. on the planet? What do you think? Yeah. Air temperature? Sure. And we're using Fahrenheit? Whatever system you want, as long as it's not Kelvin. Dang Fahrenheit it. or I centigrade. Go I got Kelvin. them both. Um... Oh, man. I would go... I'd say about minus negative. 80 Fahrenheit. Yeah, I was about to go minus, like, 100. Because I'm thinking... Ooh. I'm thinking Antarctica, man. Okay. Uh, well, I'm afraid you're both uh, too warm. Ooh. Uh, now, it, again, is... just like any <laughs> record, there's a little bit of controversy. Um because there are records of humans measuring the air ground temperature, which is measured about five feet off the ground is kind of the standard now. But we also now have this new technology of remote sensing through satellites. And so there's some debate amongst like, well, should that count? Because maybe that's actually measuring the ground temperature and not the actual air temperature. And scientists kind of think that they figured out where they can actually measure the air temperature with it now. So again, a little bit of controversy on this, but we do know that on July 21st, 1983, at the Soviet Vostok station in, Rachel? Antarctica. Antarctica. Uh, researchers recorded an air temperature of negative 89.2 centigrade. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, which that's is cold. Negative 
128.6 Fahrenheit. <laughs> so cold. A bit chilly. Now, with I mentioned that remote Never sensing. Never want to be there. Uh, we, scientists studying data from Antarctica using satellites believe that um, in some areas it may actually reach negative 137. But that's never been like Confirmed. actual recorded by a thermometer on the ground. But that the data seems to indicate that's how cold it can get on Earth. That doesn't oh, so, surprise me, but at the same time, amazing. Yeah, super amazing. One of the things I find so interesting is that the cold extreme seems much more extreme than the hot extreme. And, you know, humans, as humans, we run into like 100 degree weather from time to time, and it's problematic. But like, a, you know, jump in a river or a lake or something like that and... If it's a 100-degree day, you're like, whoo, it's gorgeous out here, you know? Even a 120-degree day, if you're in a pool or something like that, you're probably like, all right, this is, this is, I can do this because you can get rid of that extra heat, you know, into the, the pool water. Assuming the water's not 120 degrees, right. then you're in big trouble too. Um, but, you know. Welcome to the burning I mean, unit. Right. Even here in Minnesota, you know, we experience something at least in the general ballpark, I feel like. Of the record, I mean, we, you can get to 100, you're like, well, doing between 100 and 130, it's 30 degrees, and that, it's a big 30 degrees, it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the cold, I mean, it gets cold here, but the coldest in Minnesota gets nowhere near the record cold. Mm -hmm. Our absolute coldest record was way up in the uh, northern Minnesota, and it was negative 60 Fahrenheit. That's still 77 degrees warmer than the coldest it can get in Antarctica. So, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating that the, the, the cold seems so much colder than the hottest hot seems hot. Yeah. But, but we are warm-blooded animals, so that probably, that probably has something to do with our perception as well. A little bit. And I will say that I personally would prefer it to be colder than too hot because it's harder for your body to cool down if you don't have access to, like, cold water or anything to help keep right. you cold. Or I think, I think it depends. It kind yeah, of it depends, depends on I mean, the person. At a certain point, you can't put enough clothes on to keep heat in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's no way to add heat, but you can always, you know, jump in a, a river or something to cool off. Whereas, I mean, you could jump in lava. It's going to warm you up, but it's not going to, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Once again, Anyways. welcome to the burn unit. <laughs> I'm not going to make you guess all these, but I want to sh shoot through some other fun records uh, for, for this planet we live on. The wettest place on Earth, uh, which is a lot of ways to define that. I'm going to define that as the most rain in one year. Uh, that record is held by Cherapunji uh, uh, no, Meghalaya. I, I probably said that totally wrong, but it's in India. Oh, and okay. this was recorded in uh, a one-year period in eight, from 1860 to 1861. They got 26,000... 470 millimeters of rain and i know that that like you can't picture that because you're like millimeter i know it's That's, really small you should not measure things like that in millimeters even in inches it's 1042 inches and oh, you're like God. nope that still doesn't i can't really picture that let me put it this way for you That's 87 feet of rain <laughs> <laughs> wow. you are That's a lot so of rain. underwater what if it's cold, though? You're going to get snow instead. So most snow is a place that I've actually been, Mount Rainier uh, in Washington State. And this was um, a February to February period uh, in 1971 to 1972. And 
they got 31.5 meters of snow. So it's 102 feet. feet 102 feet of snow. That's so and, much uh, snow. Rachel, pick your jaw up off the ground there. Uh, no, it's going to stay there. I remember when I was on Mount Rainier, I drove up there with my brother who lives out in that part of the world. And this was uh, September or August. And it was, it was cold up there. But as we're going up the road, there's these huge poles on the side of the road that I want to say were like 20 foot tall poles that had stripes on them. And we're kind of going, what are all these poles for on the side of the road? Right. And then we realized they were for the snow plows. Yeah. So we have little like three foot stakes on the driveway. <laughs> they had like 20 foot high poles. So that the plow drivers wouldn't, you know, drive off the side of the mountain. <laughs> my, and of course, once it, re- once it really gets going, you know, it's, it's not plowed at all. My, uh, yeah. my uncle lives in California and he, he's kind of into snowfall records in the sierra nevada there and donner pass places like that and he sent me this really cool video of these uh trains they have that clear the snow off the tracks oh yeah pretty awesome the 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 snowplow trains are pretty awesome that's pretty so awesome yeah let's talk about wind uh (laughs) fastest wind ever recorded what do you think what are we talking oh i would uh, say like like in a tornado or just like normal winds that would count okay I'm going to go 210 miles per hour. 335 miles per hour. All right. Well, most records for wind are direct anemometer readings. Like, again, you know, you got the tool right there. Um, And most of these records are set during hurricanes. Brief, like, three-second, five-second gusts during hurricanes. Uh, The record was a brief gust of 253 miles an hour. However... We think that was probably beat out uh, back in 1999 at, in a tornado in Oklahoma. Uh, now, this was Doppler radar was used to figure out the wind speed. And so there's there's some error bars on these numbers, but it was mm-hmm. four, 484 kilometers an hour, which is 301 miles an hour. Uh, and the miles not. per hour one <laughs> is plus or minus 20 miles an hour. So I wasn't so that far off. Yeah, no. I mean, it could have been as much as 321. Uh, but probably we think around 300 miles an hour is the, the fastest winds will get going in a tornado. Uh, that's even amazing. Even, even if you subtracted it out to the bottom of what it could have been, you take the 20 miles an hour off, you end up with 281, 281. And that is, that is still faster than has been, you know, measured I was going to say by hand, but yeah, by <laughs> anemometer. Yeah, uh, stick your hand out. Yeah. Boom. You are gone. Uh, you are off the ground circling in whatever tornado or anything. Yeah. Oh, damn. So I have one last fun little one uh, for, for some of these, these weather extremes. And it's one I came across and I was like, this is just an outstanding little fact I wanted to share. And it's the highest ultraviolet index. I don't know, often, oh. you know, sometimes you don't think about UV index. In the summertime, I know where we live here, on a real sunny day, you might get a UV index of 9. If mm-hmm. it gets up to 10, you're like, ooh, look out. You're going you're gonna to burn uh, if you're I'm out in the sun for too long. I'm reapplying sunscreen all exactly. of the time. Exactly, yeah. Well, um, I have a guess. Back in, oh, what do you think? It's going to be in the mm-hmm. southern hemisphere. Um, yeah, it was, yep. Okay. So this was actually... Um, on a volcano, uh, so at 19,423 feet, so much higher up. Uh, and it was a volcano on the uh, Chile-Bolivia border. Okay. And they measured a UV index of 43.3. <laughs> oh, 
What now? Forty-three point three. Well, you're not going to turn to ash, but right. um, a a light-skinned individual such as myself could get moderate sunburn in four minutes. <laughs> So that so means that's, I would get a sunburn in about three. You, yeah, you, you, you might, you might just, yeah, just puff, I would this little puff of smoke, and there goes Rachel. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's astounding. Uh, oh, that's if you ever so check in your weather app in the morning and it says there's a UV index of 43, you know, just be careful out there, people. Okay. Maybe. So stay there you in. have it. What's that? Yeah, stay in. Uh, Earth is a planet of extreme weather. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to some of the editors over at Wikipedia who uh, compiled some of the numbers I used in today's episode. Uh, but it's just so cool to kind of look at uh, what an extreme place our planet is. Thanks, Kirk. You're welcome. Thanks, Kirk. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange. realize i need to take my vest off because it's loud that 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 didn't sound like a zipper (laughs) it sounded like a ripper (laughs) yep all right okay oh anyways